1: This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today.
0: Christy Abizade is the director of the National Counterterrorism Center. She is the eighth Senate-confirmed director and the first woman to lead the country's counterterrorism enterprise. Christy is an intelligence professional, having served at the Defense Intelligence Agency, the National Security Council staff, and the Office of the Secretary of Defense. We just sat down with Christy to talk about her career, NCTC, and the terrorist threat today. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters.
1: Okay, it's time to commit.
0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Christy, thank you for joining us. It's great to have you on the show, and it's great to see you again.
2: Yeah, it's really good to be here. Thank you very much for having me on.
0: So if it's okay with you, I'd love to cover three areas. I'd like to talk a little bit about your career I'd like to talk a little bit about NCTC as an institution, and then I'd love to ask you a few questions about kind of the threat environment today.
2: Absolutely. Sounds good.
0: So your career, what got you interested in public service, number one, and in a career in intelligence, number two?
2: So I come from a long line of public servants. My father, most prominently. He was a career military officer, army officer, and his career as the commander of CENTCOM. But my grandfather was a, a judge in our small town that where my mom was born in small town, California. And, you know, public service has just always been the thing that we do. That's, that's what we understand. Now, I did not have a goal to go into public service. And in fact, you know, I graduated college the summer of 2001 mm. and it was the 9-11 attacks that really gave me purpose that really kind of crystallized for me that i wanted to be part of the solution i wanted to to get into the ct fight and i wanted to work for the government to protect the americans and so you know it was in my blood but it was the cause the the proximate cause was 9-11 that got me into public service in the intelligence community specifically and
0: why intelligence and not some other aspect of government?
2: I'll be honest. I, I tried any way in mm. to the CT fight. I I applied to be in the Postal Service as an investigator. I applied to be a background investigator. I, I went on a shots-on-goal approach to get into the United States government because I thought once I was in the United States government, I'd be able to serve. And of those shots-on-goal, I was lucky enough to be recognized by the Defense Intelligence Agency who brought me in as they were building up a new cadre of ct professionals in the immediate aftermath of the attacks and i think they recognized in me less a you know deep and vast ct expertise great language capability you know what they recognized in me was that you know i was a, a college athlete i was willing to work hard I'd be passionate about the work and quick on my feet. And so I was really, really lucky to come into the intelligence community at the time that I did and um, to be given the opportunity to serve the way I have.
0: So what do you think are the key factors in your success? You know, which has been significant. You're the youngest director of NCTC ever. So what, why, what's behind that success, do you think? And what are the kind of lessons for for younger officers who, you know, want to be like you?
2: Well, Mike Leiter would tell you he was much younger than me. We <laughs> but it's not so. true, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I can't wait to get that fact check and, and take it to him. That'll be a lot of fun. Um I don't know the answer to that. I mean, you know, when I think about my career and I think about um, the opportunities that I have been lucky enough to have been presented along the way, you know, for me, what has been important is that I'm open to opportunities that I might not have considered if I had tried to map this out a five-year plan, right? When I think about, you know, where I was on, you know, June 3rd, 2002, when I entered on duty at the Defense Intelligence Agency— you know, one, the National Counterterrorism Center didn't exist, but I never thought that I was going to be a leader in the CT community. I just knew I wanted to contribute. And being open about the ways in which I would be able to contribute, thinking about how I wanted to progress in my career, not from job to job, but from capability to capability, from professional development experience to professional development experience. That's what's been important to me. So, you know, I've stumbled my way to being in the best job in government, but, you know, the the key is be good at what you do, be committed to what you do, be passionate about what you do, take care of the people that you work with and for and who work for you, and, and you'll be able to find a way to contribute. Yeah.
0: So, Christy, you're also the first female and the first openly gay director of NCTC. Mm-hmm. How do you think about those things? How do you think about breaking the glass ceiling on those things. And do you think it puts more weight on your shoulders? Do you think you feel more responsibility as a result of it?
2: So I don't think about those things. In part because if you think too much about it, you know, you kind of lose sight of the work that you need to get done. I do recognize that it's important. And it's important to kind of be seen in the position that I'm in that you know, people will look at what I'm doing and will take a representation of that and latch onto it—good, bad, or indifferent—and um, and so I need to be cognizant of it. It needs to be, you know, something that I recognize is important to people, but it is not the thing that motivates me about the work that I do. You know, I am I am mission first. I am purpose driven, and uh, I have had the opportunity to do amazing things in the time that I have served for the United States government. And I'm really lucky that that has paid off in a way that has allowed me to contribute in a role like this.
0: Okay, so great transition. NCTC, what's the
2: mission? Protect the country, protect Americans overseas. You know, first and foremost, that's that's what we have to be laser focused on. You know, we um, exist as, you know, the government's knowledge base on terrorism. We have the authoritative database on known and suspected terrorists. We have a strategic operational planning function. We are unique across government in the authorities we have, the data we have, the the collaboration across an interagency environment, environment that exists at NCTC, and that is all to serve the protection of the United States of America.
0: And in terms of the analytic function that you have, how does it differ from what CIA does or DIA?
2: I think our difference is in the uniqueness of the data that we hold we hold data from multiple parts of the government we hold data from that you know focuses on the homeland that focuses on foreign intelligence targets and we're the one place where all that data comes together and commingles which means that as a strategic intelligence analyst at the national counterterrorism center you get access to that data you're able to exploit that data and you're laser-focused on understanding how that data will inform your understanding of what's coming at the homeland in terms of the terrorist threat. And you do that in an environment at NCTC where you're sitting next to an ODNA cadre analyst, you're sitting next to a CIA analyst, you're sitting next to an FBI analyst, a DIA analyst. It is an interagency environment, and it's one of the few that exist where, where we collaborate as a matter of you know how we do business.
0: And what's your role in domestic terrorism, whether it's Americans inspired by jihadi terrorism or whether it's right-wing terrorism? What do you do? What don't you do?
2: So we actually have unique authorities to be relevant in this space in a way that other parts of the intelligence community need to be very careful about. We, in the domestic context, are, are kind of a support element to the FBI, to the Department of Homeland Security, especially when you're talking about those acts of terrorism, those individuals that are motivated to violence without any inspiration from or connection to a foreign terrorist organization. You know, our primary role is to connect the dots, to live in the seams, and to look across the information that we have to be able to discern, you know, when a threat is coming our way. And so transnational linkages, searching for transnational linkages, figuring out ways to disrupt those transnational linkages, that's our bread and butter. But we are also, you know, what I would say is the, the U.S. government's premier counterterrorism analysis center. And so um, the way that we are able to leverage our analytic expertise in support of whatever the predominant trend is in the counterterrorism environment in the in the United States, is critical, and we have real contributions to make across the board.
0: So I want to ask you about budgets, and I know you are you are constrained in what you can say. Um, I know it's hard to say the administration's not giving you enough or Congress is not giving you enough. I've been there. I know that, right? But it's also clear that both in the Trump administration, CT was a bill payer, and in the Biden administration, CT is a bill payer for, for great power competition where are you from a budget perspective do you are you being squeezed what's the impact of that how do you think about it
2: yeah uh, i mean the the budget trends are are downward and they're downward across administrations but in some ways in in very reasonable ways you know first i mean let me just say you know as the leader of the national counterterrorism center i couldn't be more supportive of our government's focus on strategic competition it is exactly where we need to go And, you know, as we look at orienting our national security infrastructure in a way that actually gets at the complex dynamics associated with Russia, China, the cybersecurity dynamics that are all at play, I think that's strategically absolutely where we need to go. And the fact that we can do it in a proactive way, the fact that we're not reacting as we were immediately post 9-11 to create an infrastructure after a crisis, I think um, is real credit to you know, administrations across parties in recognition of what is the major strategic threat that we need to be prepared to address. Now, I also believe that our counterterrorism work is an enabling function to all that. One major attack swings us right back Mm -hmm. into the wrong direction. And so for us, we need to be really deliberate in this moment of choice about what counterterrorism capability we sustain, what collaboration mechanisms are most effective, We have built something great over the last 20 years that has protected the country against another major 9-11-style attack. That needs to be sustained, and we need to be very uh, choosy about how we sustain it in the most effective manner. And so I think the the budget pressures are right. They're making us ask the right questions. It's in service to the right strategic mission for the country. But fundamentally, CT is an enabling capability for the rest of the national security infrastructure, and and we need to sustain it.
0: So I think I'm going to get this right, but you have a sort of a mixed workforce, right? You have folks on rotation from from other agencies, and then you have have your own permanent people, correct? So if I'm listening to this podcast... And I'm listening to Christy, and I say, I want to work there, right? Mm-hmm. What do you look for in your permanent employees that you hire? How should I be thinking about building my resume to get a job at NCTC?
2: Well, you need to do more than play soccer in, in college, <laughs> like I did. No, look, we uh, we look for passion. We look for expertise. We look for agility. We look for language capability. We look for deep expertise in um, certain aspects of Especially data science technologies, we want we need to keep kind of our technological edge as a CT community, and we want to house those capabilities at NCTC. Uh, we look for regional expertise. We look for fundamentally people that are passionate about protecting the United States, passionate about the counterterrorism mission, and who want to own the responsibility of protecting the country on their shoulders. And um, and there's a wide range of people that really fill the halls of NCTC, of ODNI, and um, all of them share that trait, is that they really want to own this responsibility at this moment in our country's history.
0: Okay, so let's switch to the third area, sort of the, the threat today. And the first question is the strategic threat, right? So we're, we're almost 21 years now past... 9-11, how do you think of the threat from kind of the 50,000-foot level?
2: It is complex. It is, it is a complex environment where, you know, in, in some ways you look at the threat that was coming at us on 9-11 from a centrally organized, isolated, ideologically committed network, defined network that was based in the Afghanistan-Pakistan region and that threat, that threat from that version of Al Qaeda, has been decimated. Now, in its place, uh, Al Qaeda has spawned multiple affiliates across, you know, multiple different regions. We've got Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which is probably, I think, the most concerning of the affiliates in terms of intent against the homeland. We've got Al Shabaab. We've we've got JNIM in North Africa, which is driving a number of really interesting dynamics in terms of how that threat environment is evolving. You've got a new environment in Afghanistan, which, you know, 21 years later is a very difficult environment to discern in terms of what's happening from a CT perspective. And and you have the spawning of ISIS, which comes from an al-Qaeda in Iraq background, which has grown in terms of its branches and affiliates over the last Um, many years, including, you know, I think it's something like 16 different branches across multiple different countries. And they have taken what was this centrally organized hierarchical approach to plotting against the West, and they democratized it. And they made it much more difficult for counterterrorism professionals across Europe, across the United States, across the world to understand what was happening in terms of an individual's decision to motivate to violence. And when I look at the most likely way in which a terrorist attack will happen here in the homeland or, or, you know, in parts of Europe, it is an individual motivated, using crude weapons, easily accessed, including a vehicle that they might drive on a regular basis. And it's without many of the signatures that have allowed us to protect against the centrally directed networked threat for so many years now that's not to say that that centrally directed threat doesn't exist anymore it's just that we've gotten much better at deterring that than um than i think any of us expected
0: we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with christy Abizade. Maybe dive a little bit deeper into the into the individual issues and I'd love to start with Afghanistan. So in his confirmation hearing in February, uh, the new CENTCOM commander, General Kurilla, said al-Qaeda and ISIS-K are reconstituting. He also said that both groups have aspirations to attack the homeland, but they don't yet have the capability. So I love your view on how significant the reconstitutions have been and if you see any evidence at all of either group building an external attack capability,
2: the dynamic in and around Afghanistan is one of our top priorities from an intelligence community perspective, from a CT perspective. If you think about the way that the strategic landscape has changed over the last however many years, you know Af- Afghanistan um, and our our presence having been removed from Afghanistan is is a major. Change that we have to understand. ISIS-K and um, al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent were two networks that were present in Afghanistan when we decided to leave, and they are now dealing with a dynamic that neither of them expected in the Taliban control, de facto control, of Kabul and the country. And so how these two organizations deal with the new reality is uh is is very different isis-k views the taliban as its number one enemy and um if you you know have followed the news of what the security environment looks like in afghanistan right now it is marred by Mm isis-k whether that isis-k focus against the taliban actually translates to external intent that they are actively pursuing today that is our main intelligence priority The Al-Qaeda dynamic is different. The Al-Qaeda has to wrestle with a long-standing history with the Taliban where their actions reflect on the Taliban's ability to lead the country, the international perception of the Taliban as legitimate. And I think that creates a much different dynamic than we're dealing with on the ISIS case side. So, you know, top priority really important in terms of understanding the external intent. My, my suspicion is that, it, that this kind of uh, democratized model of inspired attacks is the most likely way you're going to see anything external emerge from mm. any of the ISIS or Al Qaeda affiliates across the board. But you know, indications and warnings of a major external operation capability being rebuilt in Afghanistan is our top priority.
0: So, General Kurla, in in his testimony, and Bill Burns has said this publicly as well, CIA Director Burns, that maintaining this over-the-horizon capability is really tough. You know, not impossible, but but really, really tough. So, I'm just wondering how much you worry about what you don't know.
2: Well, I mean, I'm a CT professional. I, that, that's like my number one worry <laughs> right, is what, right. what I don't know right. is happening. And that's not just an Afghanistan statement. You know, I don't think of the Afghanistan CT environment as one that's entirely over the horizon. Um, you know, we're intelligence professionals. We um, do denied area operations uh, all over the world and against really hard targets. And uh, we're going to have to build that for Afghanistan as well. And we've always known that. You know, Afghanistan is harder than when we had troops on the ground, fobs all over the country. and were able to target threats as soon as we saw them. It is a harder operating environment, no doubt. But that doesn't mean that we aren't going to be effective as a counterterrorism community in, one, understanding the threats that might be developing there, two, kind of building a CT architecture, not just in Afghanistan but around Afghanistan to protect against that, and um, using all the best tools at our disposal to um, you know, disrupt the facilitation routes, understand where the money is going, you know, discern what plots are actually forming to be credible and must demand that we take action. So I'm confident in our counterterrorism community. I'm confident in the focus that we have there. And um, yes, it's a hard target, but uh, we were built for those.
0: So let's let's move, Christy, to Iraq and Syria. And I'm wondering what the status of ISIS is there. Are they bouncing back or not? I mean, there's a status quo.
2: Yeah, well, so, you know, the the death of Haji Abdullah in February was, I think, a a major blow to the organization, not least because it was the most recent in a series of successive losses that took experienced leaders off the battlefield. And when you think about, like, our counterterrorism pressure campaign over uh, especially the last 10 years, it's fundamentally about getting the most talented most threatening individuals off the battlefield in a way that protects the country. And so, um, you know, kudos to all of the work across the intelligence community, military operations. Were you community. surprised
0: that it didn't generate more, more media interest? And maybe that's mm-hmm. actually a good thing? Yeah. If you think about it?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I look at that and I say, well, look at how resilient we are as a country where this hasn't become the news cycle for the last 48 hours, the last, you know, two weeks. We're not, you know, the, a lot of people were asking, who's this Haji Abdullah guy? Mm-hmm. Everybody knows who ISIS is, but, um, you know, I, I actually think it's a good thing. I yeah, think it's so a good sign for the country. Yeah. Now, ISIS core still remains a, a, a problem. And when I, you know, raise my concerns about where an external threat could emerge from, ISIS core is always going to be at the top of that list. But, you know, it's fascinating to see just how relegated to a local insurgency that organization has become. And, you know, their kind of leadership of the global jihad in that 2014 to 2017 timeframe is so dramatically different than where they are today. And really, that's a credit to our continued, our continued and persistent presence and effort there.
0: Yeah, yeah, so at their peak, they had this very effective propaganda campaign, right, which actually radicalized a number of Americans Mm -hmm. who conducted attacks here. Where is that?
2: I mean, it's it's a shell of itself, of its former self. Now, it's interesting in terms of looking at the propaganda machines of all of these groups and in particular the degree to which they want to invest in English language capabilities to try and really kind of, um, drive their message to audiences where where they can inspire the right kind of attacks in the areas that they view as most strategic it is it is a constant focus Um, this is not just about getting trained operatives and seated into the right environments for them the media operations are an essential component to sustaining the global campaign both for isis and for al-qaeda they're continuing it the resonance is maybe higher than Zawahiri's latest audio message that nobody really wants to listen to but it is um, it is a shell of its former self
0: and are we Is it your sense that we're better at dealing with it at the same time or not it's tough to deal with right yeah I
2: don't I, I actually don't know that we're better at dealing with it the the propaganda arms the media arms of these organizations especially as they get more and more decentralized there are more and different kinds of outlets that propagate their messages, it it can become a very diffuse and difficult challenge. There are also media environments that seem to be focused more on kind of the local environment that they're dealing with and occasionally spring up to try and kind of connect the global environment, the global um, cause together. And uh, it, it does. It just makes for a very challenging messaging environment.
0: We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us.
2: Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
0: So AQAP in Yemen. Yeah. Um, so when I was deputy director, yeah. you know, th- this was the issue, right? Mm-hmm. This was this was the place we worried most about. There was a number of attempted attacks coming out of Yemen toward the homeland. You mentioned it a few minutes ago. Is a place you still worry about? Yeah. What's going on with AQAP? How much does the civil war there play to them, give them space? How do you think about AQAP?
2: Yeah, I mean, in in general, any um, any environment that invites chaos provides opportunity for these groups to thrive, and um, AQAP has certainly been able to sustain itself, though um, has absolutely been uh, distracted by and undermined by both the international coalition that's active there and you know, this dynamic with the Houthis that, that, um, you know, results in squeezing of their territory from directions that they may not have anticipated. Uh, That said, you know, the concern that I've always had with AQAP is a concern that um, pertains today, which is that small cadre of experienced operatives that is focused on mounting some of the most technologically sophisticated external attacks that we've seen emerge from the al-qaeda network and when you know you look across the last 20 years and the number of attacks that have happened here in the homeland you know the most recent was in 2019 where aqap associated itself with the shooting in pensacola florida Mm -hmm. at the naval air station Um, you know those are the kinds of things that we've got to be very attentive to we have to understand that they could emerge from anywhere and um and we've got to kind of train our intelligence resources on understanding that piece of tactical information that may not seem relevant in a sea of other information um but that you you can discover and then disrupt threats based on
0: you know the pensacola attack was interesting because it was an external attack it was yeah
2: it was and and it there was. It was interesting because we didn't know it at the time. It took about a couple of months for them to claim it and a couple of months later for the United States government to talk about what we found uh, in terms of the validity of that linkage. And in that time, I mean, speaking again to the resilience of the American public and how much these kinds of um, attacks dominate the, the narrative, I mean, uh, it seemed to me that the American public had moved on. Yeah.
0: And then Africa, and you mentioned al-Shabaab in Somalia. Yeah, General Townsend, who is the the commander of AFRICOM, as you know, said it's the group of al-Qaeda folks he worries most about. He doesn't have to worry about Yemen, but he says it's the group he worries most about. And I'm wondering how you think about al-Shabaab in terms of an external attack capability outside of Somalia in Africa and then even outside of Africa. How concerned are you about that?
2: I am more concerned about Shabab's attack capability in the region that they dominate, Somalia, of course. But Americans that um, are in Kenya, Americans in the um, surrounding region, I, I am concerned about the degree to which uh, Al Shabab is able to project outside of Somalia, especially in their in, in that immediate um, in their immediate environs. Shabab's intent for external operations farther afield is uh is a subject of a lot of scrutiny in the intelligence community and for good reason it is the most well-funded of al-qaeda's current affiliates it's the most capable most active in their immediate field of operations and um it's connected to other al-qaeda elements that um you know with their contribution to any kind of plotting, we should be really concerned about the effects that it could have, and, and including here in the homeland. Uh, and so, I would I would describe the the overall external threat from Shabab as something that has to be a top intelligence pri- priority, and certainly is.
0: Why now, are they um, um, Why are they better funded than most other groups?
2: Because of the territory they own in Somalia, oh, I see. Uh, the I a, see. and the way in which they're able to extort their way to deep coffers, I see, I see. it's um it is it is pretty remarkable. Um, now, and can can I just can sure. I just add a little bit on Africa and General Townsend and I have have had these conversations. You know, as much as um, Shabab is an urgent threat and one in which we've got really got to get our arms around from an intelligence and operational perspective. You know. The, the trickier intelligence challenge, the indications and warning challenge, I actually think comes from North Africa. Uh, it comes from the Al Qaeda affiliate that's operating there and ha- has really expanded. And
0: when you say North Africa, define that Mostly geographically. The okay. Mostly the Sahel.
2: Mostly um, the Sahel. And for those
0: people that don't know what the Sahel is.
2: So uh, we'll, we'll, Mali, Northern Mali, you know, that, that region Southern of the world. Southern Libya. Yeah, okay. absolutely. And it's a cross border. It's a cross-border region where a group called JNIM operates and operates with increasing capability and impunity. And in fact, you, know, you look at some of the um, littoral African states that border that region in the south and the threat of JNIM's expansion there as you know, really problematic for the stability of governments, the, the kind of you know, underlying conditions that really allow terrorist groups to thrive. And the question for us is not just you know how does JM's growth affect terrorism on the African continent, affect Americans who might be on the African continent, but you know, at what point does that threat, that growing dynamic, actually present a major threat to the homeland? And how do we as an intelligence community, get really smart about the kinds of indications and warning we need to track to make sure that we understand when this kind of local intent has gone global? and is transnationally relevant for our global counterterrorism effort
0: what's the source of their of their growth what's the source of their expansion is it poor governance is it all-
2: it's all it, yes it's poor governance it's um disaffected populations it's you know it's extortion it's you know their ability to dole out justice more quickly, even if not uh, in a way that all individuals would agree is fair, they are able to thrive in an environment where there is no authority that is, is holding them accountable. And, and to co-opt a population that you know, is looking to survive. Yeah.
0: Is there an ISIS group? In Africa that you're concerned about? Yeah.
2: Uh, I mean, there are multiple. ISIS's branch expansion has been most dramatic in parts of Africa. That's, you know, there's ISIS West Africa, but there's also, you know, elements in Central Africa. You look at ISIS Somalia and ISIS Somalia's kind of um, influence over other branches in, on the African continent. And, um, you know, there is definitely an ISIS dynamic there. What's interesting is the ISIS dynamic... Is many times in conflict with the Al Qaeda dynamic and kind of the inner Nisan violence that that will happen in different parts of Africa is very tribal and, and and um and creates a complexity for us in the CT environment that's you know that is certainly a challenge.
0: The degree to which these groups around the world, um, both Al Qaeda and ISIS, are connected back to their motherships, right? Back to Zawahiri um wherever he is um, in south asia and back to isis core in in iraq and syria is it does it depend is it yeah. is it pretty much the same is it
2: no i th- it varies greatly i would still call al qaeda the more hierarchical of the two and in fact you know if you look at the way that isis expanded over the years they were very interested in you know, democratizing the way in which their their brand could flourish, the attempts by different elements that would associate with them um, to kind of establish their own local caliphate. So um, I would say that, you know, the metastasizing of the al-Qaeda network, the metastasizing of the ISIS network has kind of very different characteristics that underlie it. Central uh, leadership from the al-Qaeda network is still very important. Zawahiri, as much as... Um, some might be bored by him. The al-Qaeda network isn't, and still kind of considers that him an important ideologue for the network. And ISIS, uh, ISIS is different that way. It's much less centrally centrally connected.
0: Lastly, Christy, far-right extremism. The FBI director, Chris Ray, says it's the biggest terrorist threat we face. How should we think about that?
2: Uh, well, I mean, I, I think Director Ray's right. So you know, I was looking at the numbers today. We've had 45 foreign terrorist attacks inside the homeland since 9-11 over the last 21 years. Uh, in half that time, since 2010, uh, we've had the same number of attacks from what we term as domestic violent extremists. And, and most of those attacks, um, which are highly lethal, you know, the majority of them and the majority of the deaths are, are perpetrated by racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists. You know when i when I think about the way that the global terrorism environment has changed, the way that that manifests here in the United States in a different way, you know this rise of domestic violent extremists that um, you know that are conducting attacks without motivation from a foreign element, without a connection to a foreign terrorist organization, they are are, leaving an indelible mark on how the threat is developing in the United States and the way in which Chris Ray's folks can array against that threat. And so we from the national counterterrorism community are really focused on doing our part within the scope of our authorities to support the FBI, to support DHS as we try and get ahead of and protect against that version of um, the the terrorist threat that is presented to Americans.
0: And there's there's some links, correct, between... These domestic violent extremists here and similar folks overseas.
2: That is one of our number one tasks as the National Counterterrorism Center is to determine the foreign linkages, linkages to understand the transnational elements. Um, so there are some, but I don't, I don't want to overstate it. And in fact, what's interesting and I think important in the intelligence realm is the degree to which our partners and allies in different parts of the world are dealing with similar phenomena and trying to learn from how they're dealing with racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists. How, how might that inform the way that we're mm. dealing with it? And how do we establish a linkage across the movement, which is enabled by social media in a way that helps us protect against those that actually choose to mobilize to violence?
0: So is it safe to say, Christy, that, if your phone rings and somebody tells you that a federal building um, somewhere in the United States has just been bombed, that your first instinct would go to domestic violent extremism as opposed to international terrorism.
2: Mm, not necessarily.
0: Not necessarily. I
2: think I think it could. Um, I think either could happen upon us with equal likelihood. And and you know, look, as an intelligence professional, I'm going to wait to see what the intelligence sure, sure. the intelligence sure. tells us. But but I certainly wouldn't scope out the DVE threat, and I know it's just as likely, and maybe maybe more so than um, than those that are inspired by foreign terrorist organizations.
0: Okay, Christy, last question. Sure. Um, what do you want our listeners to know about the women and men who work at NCTC?
2: It it is a phenomenal group of people. You know, I um I walk into the building every day, fortunate to be surrounded by people that care about what they're doing, that find purpose in the mission, and that are incredibly bright and incredibly committed to doing what we need to do as the National Counterterrorism Center to protect the country and and doing the things that we're uniquely enabled to do at the National Counterterrorism Center. It's a place from an IC perspective where you get an opportunity unlike any other in the IC in terms of, you know, that mix of 16 different agencies surrounding you at your desk as you're trying to pull together all the relevant information to understand what's happening. And, um, you know, I've seen this team and the unique capabilities across the center spring to action in a time of crisis. I think the withdrawal from Afghanistan is a perfect example. And um, and uh, to say that I am incredibly proud of what they do on a daily basis would, would be an understatement. It's a great place.
1: Christy, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Yeah, thank you.
1: Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News.